Okay, if you have your uh, Bibles, please go ahead and open them to uh, 1 Peter 5, second to last message in 1 Peter, Lord willing. One of our neighbors has a sign that reads, Beware of Dog. Beware of Dog. That sign has not impacted my life in any way. Why? Well, because I've got no intention of hopping my neighbor's fence. Right? I'm not going to try any sneaking into their home. The fact that they have a sign that says, Beware of Dog, is just great. But it doesn't mean anything to me. Well, in today's passage in 1 Peter 5, God's messenger, the Apostle Peter, hangs up a warning sign over the lives of his people. It's a warning sign that many of us would consider unnecessary. The warning sign says, beware of Satan. And really, honestly, I think many of us would discount that warning. Now, some may discount it because we live in an anti-supernatural age. We're not like the... Uh, days of Jesus when we saw many people who were demon-possessed and Jesus was casting on demons. We don't really understand how it's different. We wouldn't, always, we wouldn't know if someone was demon-possessed. And we just live in an age where it seems kind of distanced. I'm not saying that there's not demonic activity, but it's just not part of our age and what we talk about. Others of us may discount that warning, a beware of, beware of Satan sign, because we have confidence in the atoning work of Christ. And that's good. We should. We reason, well, what can Satan do to us if we've been saved? If we've been chosen by God, if we've been saved by Christ, if we've been united to Christ, what can Satan do to me? And there is some scriptural reason for that. Like John 10, verses 27 to 28 where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So we might wonder, well, why do I need to beware of Satan? Satan can't snatch me out of Jesus' hand. Some may discount that warning sign, beware of Satan, out of mental laziness. Well, I'm sure there's, there's probably a reason, but uh, uh, it's the Lakers preseason, so I'm not going to worry about that right now. Yet Peter says in First, in First Peter chapter five, verse nine, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If you saw a beware of lion sign, you might take caution. He puts up a beware of Satan sign. This warning has been breathed out by God through His prophet. God the Spirit has ensured that Peter accurately reports what God intends. Satan wants to devour you. Satan wants to devour you. So our big idea this morning is beware of Satan. And we're going to see two commands we have to obey from 1 Peter 5, 8 through 11. Two commands we have to obey if we're going to survive Satan's attack. Two commands we have to obey if we're going to survive Satan's attack. And the first command is realize the danger you face. Realize the danger you face. In verse 8, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
See, Peter follows the command to be humble before God in verse 6 with two commands to be on guard against the devil in verse 8. And you might be thinking, well, I was here last week when we talked about worry and anxiety and humility. Well, what connection is there between that and this command to the wear of Satan? And that logic may not be obvious at first, and we're going to kind of explore that more later. But let's start with the command first, verse 8. Be of sober spirit, or the ESV as be sober-minded. Our uh, lexicon describes that being sober-minded is free from every, uh, every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness. Free from excess and passion and rashness and confusion. Another one says, to be in control of one's thought processes and thus not in the danger of irrational thinking. So the opposite of being sober-minded is being irrational. It's being take, taken over with something. We've seen this verb a couple times in 1 Peter. We see in 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And really, it's a theme through 1 Peter. Be sober. And again, he's not, just talk, he's not really talking about alcohol at all there. It's a metaphor. And we start seeing here connections with the previous command about casting our cares upon him who cares for us. See, worry muddles our thinking. Right? If you're just worried about something, you're not being sober-minded. You just maul over it. You chew on it. Worry obscures reality. Worry draws us into our pretend world of, of wishes and what-ifs. Worry leads us to think, well, what if I were God? What would I do? We must stay on guard. We have to be free from, from the dulling effects of anxiety. And it does. Anxiety dulls us. Politics, fear of politics, dulls us. Fear of bills deadens us. Health concerns, whether someone likes us or not, all of those things have a deadening effect on us, an effect of drunkenness. What, we know what we're supposed to do with those cares. We learned last time we're supposed to cast them on the Lord. But if we choose, I'm just going I'm to keep worrying. I'm going to keep chewing on this. I'm going to think about this instead of what's true. That's not being of sober spirit. Peter continues to be on the alert. Or ESV, be watchful. It's to be in constant readiness. It's the opposite is dozing off. And we see, uh, it used that way, Matthew 26, verse 40. Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men cannot keep watch with me for one hour. That word, keeping watch. You cannot be on the alert. And so that's what Peter's saying. Wake up. Snap out of it. We know that we can't worry. But neither is it right to escape worry by zoning out in television or on the internet. It's not right to escape worry by just thinking of our vacation plans or the home renovations we're going to do. We can't escape worry by medicating our problems away, by deadening our senses. We have to cast those cares on the Lord and be alert. 
And so Peter explains why. Why do we need to be of sober spirit? Why do we need to be on the alert? He explains in the second half of verse 8, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The English word devil translates the Greek word diabolos, which sounds a lot like uh, the Spanish word as well. The translation of the Hebrew name for Satan. The Hebrew Satan means adversary or opponent. The Greek means one who slanders. And we see this, this adversarial, the slandering nature of Satan in Job 1. In Job 1, there's a scene where Satan wants to accuse Job and saying that the only reason why Job is faithful to God is because God hasn't tried him enough. Really, he hasn't given Job enough to worry about. So in Job 1, verse 7, it sets up the scene a little bit there. The, the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And just to make clear, uh, Satan is not a mini-god. Satan is a fallen angel. He, as far as we know, and there's a lot we don't know about angels, but he is located to one time and place. He is just a being created by a god. He's not a mini-god. Satan answered and said, Well, I've been roaming about on the earth, walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Like, you've, you've been good to them. Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And so we see here Satan's, uh, uh, his, his adversarial nature, his slandering nature, his accusing nature. He's saying, God, the only reason why Job is faithful to you is because you've been so good to him. But if you remove blessing from Job's life, if you afflict Job, you're going to see Job's real nature come out. So God does allow much disaster fall upon Job. And yet, uh, even though Job is faithful, uh, Satan comes back again in Job 2, verses 4 and 5. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. He's saying, well, Job's still faithful, uh, even though you took his children and all of his flocks and all of your riches. But however, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So again, he's, he's, he's continuing on with this slandering and this accusing. We see Satan do the same thing in, 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 in a Zechariah 3.1. And it's not, uh, it's, not, it's not certain that that is Satan in Zechariah 3, but I think it is. And, 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 and our Bible's translated that way. Zechariah 3.1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, and, and, and I'll talk about this more later. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Prophet Zechariah has a vision, and, he, and there's the Joshua the high priest of, of Israel, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And I just bring up that, that, that example, I'll talk about it more later, to show what Satan does. Satan accuses God's people. Satan slanders, Satan lies, and Satan is a, a, a adversary. We see Peter use that same, uh, the, the same language when he calls him 
a adversary in 1 Peter 5.8. It's one who brings a charge in a lawsuit, or more broadly, one who is antagonistic to another, an enemy, an opponent. So Satan is an enemy of the saints. Satan is your enemy. We have no idea if Satan has ever brought up one of you before God and accused you. We have no idea. Right? We, we, we don't know what happens in the courts of heaven. What we do know is very clear is that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is our adversary. He is your adversary. He is your accuser. He slanders saints just like you. It says that he prowls around like a roaring lion. And that word prowling is really just the Greek word for a walking and our Bible translators are having some fun with it here in probably an appropriate way. What do lions do? Do they walk around looking for someone to devour? No. This is a creative way to translate this, this word walking. They prowl. They are looking for someone to destroy. They, they quietly hunt their prey. It's appropriate to what lions do. Lions, and Peter describes them as a roaring lion. And that roaring is, is a fear-inducing roar. That roar shows ownership. It, it shows ownership of that land. It's why a lion roars. And lion roars to intimidate others. They roar to show how big they are. A roaring lion suggests a lion that is bold, that is threatening. And Peter describes him as someone that is seeking to devour. To devour was used of the fish that swallowed Jonah. To swallow someone whole, to, to, to devour them in one giant gulp, to eliminate them. And that is what Satan seeks to do. So Peter describes Satan here as ravenous, as bloodthirsty, as dangerous, and as threatening, and as not wanting you to continue in the faith. So brothers and sisters, be sober, be alert. Don't get distracted, don't grow lazy. Again, you have a choice now. What am I going to do with this beware of lion sign? Are you going to be sober? Are you going to be alert? Satan wants to destroy your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in much of the, uh, of the world, and, and, and we could see America going, going this way at some point, Satan uses persecution. He applies pressure on the saints so that they will leave their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, where they have to make choices like, will I go to prison and leave my family? Will I be potentially killed? Or will I stay faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ? Here in America, it's increasingly, am I willing to be mocked for my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? In some of the world... Satan uses more the allures of vanity fair, of trying to get us to fall away with the promises of pleasure. Oh, there's more pleasure outside of Christ. There's more ease outside of Christ. This whole denying yourself thing is outdated. Do what your flesh wants. Go for the salary. Go for the trophies. Go for the GPAs. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. But, but find your happiness, your identity in those things. That seems to be what Satan has done more of. Fall away because, because there's more pleasure outside there. There's more freedom. You, 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 you have the freedom of choice. You can choose for yourself what is right and wrong. You can be a little God. 
You don't have to be mocked for belonging to Jesus. Satan wants to destroy your faith in Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you to leave Christ. Peter doesn't say, don't worry. Don't worry, guys. Don't really worry about Satan. Once saved, always saved. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. Instead, though, he says, snap out of it. Sober up. You're in danger. Satan wants you to take just a single step of distrust away from Jesus Christ. He wants you to take a single step of distrust away from Jesus Christ. Are you on the verge of taking one of those steps? Maybe watching a TV show that you know you shouldn't. But I can justify it. It may be not being honest with the gospel. It may be wafering in what the Bible says about gender and roles. Satan wants you to take just a single step away from your Lord. But why does Peter give this warning here, now? Why, why, why does he say this after this call to humble ourselves before God, to cast our anxiety upon him? And if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, maybe you know the answer. When you, when you refuse to submit to God's will for your life, when you become consumed with your wisdom, I know that there's a better way. I know I, I, don't, I don't deserve to be treated this way. When your heart is shaking your fist against God, when you're saying no to him, when you become angry against him, when you become unsettled, when you become angsty, when you become bitter, when you become not okay with God's will for your life, when you refuse to cast your cares upon him, you're in danger. When we choose to worry, and that's what worry is, it is a choice. When you choose to worry, worry I've been kind of thinking about it. You know those, those spicy cinnamon candies? Hey, how many of you have ever had an atomic fireball? Any of you ever had atomic fire? They're, they're a strange candy. They're kind of sweet, but they're spicy and they're hot and they're kind of painful. But you, you, you keep sucking on it because it's kind of sweet and it's kind of like this test of valor. Like, okay, I'm going to keep it in my mouth the whole time. That's kind of like what worry's like. Right? Instead of, instead of submitting, instead of trusting this to the Lord, we, we like to just kind of suck on it. It's kind of sweet. We kind of imagine we can, we can do something with this that really, you know, that we could do better. But it's kind of hot. It's kind of painful. But we're, but we're the ones in control. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna keep sucking on this worry instead of submitting it to the Lord. When we refuse to turn our cares over to him, when we hold on to these cares, we're in danger we're not living like his trusting subjects. We're not loving him as king. So, brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning, if you're holding on to your anger, if you're holding on to your bitterness, if you're holding on to your unjust treatment, if you're holding on to your undeserved suffering, you have willingly waltzed into the lion's den. It's like you're going into the lion's den with a big, juicy, raw steak. You're a toy stuffed with catnip for a roaring lion. 
You're an, you're an attraction in Satan's playground. This is the tactic that Satan took with Job. If I strip away what's dearest to him, if I leave him with only suffering and, and concerns, that's what Satan did. if I leave him with disappointment, if I leave him disillusioned with God, if I take away everything he holds most dear, then I know I can have him. That is how Satan attacks. So if you are struggling with worries, if you are struggling with disappointment, if you are struggling with bitterness, repent, cast your cares on the Lord Jesus Christ. Realize the danger that you face. We need to realize the danger that we face from Satan. We need to beware of Satan, but we also need to resist the devil through faith. We need, to be, we need to realize the danger we face, but we also need to resist the devil through faith. Now, this word resist has a continuum of meaning. It goes from, from opposing to kind of resisting, for refusing to give in, to stand, to stand up against. And I think that's probably the idea here. We must not let Satan have his way with us. I hope you all are on the alert now. Because this is what you have to do. We must not let Satan have his way with us. But we don't oppose him by rebuking Satan. We don't do any kind of these foolish things like, I'm going to go and I'm going to do some Satan-binding mojo. That's not the instructions that Scripture gives us. Scripture tells us how to resist Satan. Our resistance is by being firm in your faith, by being steadfast in faith and shakable in faith, to being rock solid in your faith. We see that this is the same instructions that Paul gave the Ephesians. Ephesians 6, 11 through 16, he says, Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and have everything, done everything to stand firm. Then here, verse 16, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Satan is throwing flaming arrows at you. And the way that you extinguish those is through faith, being firm in faith. Faith is our shield. It is our bulletproof glass against Satan's lies. It is our vaccination against Satan's disease of doubts. It is our fortress against Satan's assaults. It is our armored car. Faith is our panic room. It's where we run to. It's our refuge. So Peter, in the rest of verses 9 through 11, is going to lead us through six aspects of God's work and his attributes so that we, that we can have faith in, so that we can be firm in our faith. So first, you can resist the devil by being through faith in God's favor. Resist the devil through faith in God's favor. We see in verse 9, he says, But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. See, Satan seeks to isolate you. He would have you think that your suffering is unique, whatever suffering you're going through now. He wants you to be self-focused, as if you were the only one suffering. He wants you to draw conclusions based on the uniqueness of your suffering. He does want you to say, woe is me. He wants you to form conclusions like, God has forgotten me. 
God must not care about me. God never loved me. God loves other Christians more than me. I must be in the outs with God. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to isolate you. So Peter reminds the saints throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day day Turkey, you are not alone. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are be accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, the, 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 the translation of that, are being accomplished, is kind of awkward. Uh, the, the, the ESV has are being experienced. And it's an, in, it's an interesting word that's chosen to show that there's in, uh, uh, in, in, t- intentionality behind our suffering. Suffering is being accomplished. It's, it's, it's not just being experienced, it's being accomplished. There's a plan behind your suffering. God is going to finish your suffering in his time. See, God's people were suffering throughout the ancient world because they were committing themselves to Jesus Christ rather than the emperor or in the, in the Jewish world by committing to this crucified and risen Messiah. They were suffering, but suffering is not an indicator, an indication of God's disfavor. Suffering is not an indication of God's disfavor. And that's what we would lie to ourselves and think. That's exactly what Satan wants you to think. It's why he says, we're all suffering. You're not alone. We're all going through this. Hardship doesn't mean you're outside of God's grace. After Paul and Barnabas had planted churches, they, 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 they went back to the churches. Acts 14.22 says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, we are going to suffer. You're not alone. We, we, we don't take some kind of sick comfort from this, like, I'm glad everyone is. The comfort is that we're not alone. So resist Satan's lies of how you think God should treat you. That we deserve acceptance from our peers and classmates. That we should all have the right to be married. We should all have biological children. We should all live in the right neighborhood. We should all get the salaries we want. That we should all have sunny days. That's Satan's lies. That's not God's plan. The same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So you're not alone when you go through suffering. Resist the devil through faith in God's favor. Also resist the devil through faith in God's timing. Beginning in verse 10 in, in, in the English says, After you have suffered for a little while, after you've suffered for a little while. See, Satan would think that the current difficulty that you face is all that you have to look forward to, right? And this is the struggle so much with depression. You're never going to feel happiness again. But he would want you to even go further than that. Not only that the current suffering is all you have to look forward to, but that eternity is not worth the discomfort of knowing and following Jesus Christ. See, Satan would have you look at the Christian life and see only suffering, only unfairness, only sadness, only sickness, only shame. But 
Peter gently, gently brings us to the reality of eternity. Suffered for a little while. It's just short. First Peter 1.6, he said, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. And those, those trials are necessary. But it's only for a little while. Eternity's infinite. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18, Paul says, This momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. Well, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. Hold on, brothers and sisters. We have eternal happiness to look forward to. Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present age are present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Brothers and sisters, we must not lose sight of the big picture. We have to have faith in God's timing. The trials are temporary. Even the worst ones. Even if they last till your last breath on life, they are temporary. The suffering is short in the eternal scale. The burdens ultimately are brief and the disappointments will soon disappear. Psalm 30, verse 5, the second half says, Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. So brothers and sisters, be firm in your faith. Hold on through this early morning darkness. Right? We are waiting for dawn. The sunrise of the eternal day has almost dawned. Christ has almost returned. Hold on. Hold on today, and hold on tomorrow, and hold on the next day. It's just a little while. We need to resist the devil being firm in faith in God's favor, firm in faith in God's timing, and also firm in faith in God's grace. And we're going to see that we're going to see firm in faith in God's past grace, in his future grace, and his current grace. So the next outline, resist the devil through faith in God's past grace. In verse 10, it says, after you have suffered for a, while, uh, a little while, the God of all grace. God is not stingy with his grace. His grace does not run out for his children. There's no danger of him overdrawing from his bank vault of grace. He delights to give grace, a grace that's only available to us because of the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus Christ. He's willing to give grace. And so Peter emphasizes what this God of all grace has done. He emphasizes his past grace first. He says, this God of all grace who called you in Christ. Who called you in Christ. Now this is not just the general gospel call that goes out. And you're sharing the gospel with someone. And you tell them the good news. And it is good news. Maybe some of you here this morning need that good news. That if you turn from your sins, if you repent from your sins, if you put your hope in Jesus Christ, you can be saved, you can be forgiven, you can be reconciled to God, you can spend eternity with him because Jesus rose from the dead, showing that God has accepted the sacrifice of his son. That is the gospel, and that gospel call just went out, but that's not the call talking about here. This is God's effective call, the call that maybe just happened to some of you, one of you, when God's call works in someone's heart so that they respond in the gospel to faith. The theologian Wayne Grudem describes this effective call. It's a kind of summons from the king of the universe. It has such power that it brings about the response that it asks for in people's hearts. 
It's the call that says, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it does that work in your heart. It's like Jesus calling Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come forth, and he comes forth. This is the call that Peter's talking about, this, this call from God's grace, this grace that we've already enjoyed if we're in Christ Jesus. See, this calling transforms us from rebels to children. This calling conscripts us, it consecrates us, and then it converts us. It is the calling that Peter spoke of in 1 Peter 2.9. He's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You're called to darkness into light. Or 1 Thessalonians 2.12, from, he called us into his own kingdom and glory. Or 1 Corinthians 1.9, he called us into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a call that, that makes you something different. And this call, this new life is only in Christ. There's no one called apart from Christ. Salvation is found in no one else. God call, brings you to Christ and places you in Christ, forever uniting you with him, with the blessings of his sacrifice, so that you are the object of his grace for eternity, never the object of his wrath. The God who called you to be in Christ, the God who made you alive so that you responded in faith to the gospel, He's not going to hang up on you. He's not going to take his Holy Spirit from you. His call is not a mistake. It's not a misdial. It's not spam. He did not begrudgingly call you. He's not working in some call service place making outgoing calls. I would not like that job. It wasn't a prank call. The God of all grace called you in Christ Jesus. So be firm in your faith. And he's encouraging them. He's saying God called, he brought you to life. So stay firm in your faith. Be on the alert against Satan. Resist him firm in your faith because of what God has done in your life. He brought you from darkness into light. He brought you into fellowship with his son. For some reason, he drafted you onto his team. Not because you were a good player, not because you were the last player left. It's because you were a horrible enemy. And he brought you onto his team. He called you. He made you his child. So resist the devil firm in your faith in God's favor and God's timing and God's past grace, but also in his future grace. In his future grace, in verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He called you, but there's a direction to this call to eternal glory in Christ. God's grace has a direction. And this is eternal glory. His grace is a non-refundable, blood-bought, one-way ticket. Non-refundable, purchased with his own son's blood, one-way ticket into the glory of eternity. God has given you a front-row seat on the eternal display of his glory. And our hearts will have their greatest desire met when we get to see him. Moses. One of the most holy men ever, the most humble man on the earth, only got to see a portion of God's glory. God was too holy that he had to hide Moses from seeing all of him. But we are going to see the invisible God of all of his glory. We're going to see him manifest in his son, Jesus Christ. We will be able to feast on his eternity and his glory for eternity. 
1 Peter 4.13 says, To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. We rejoice now, and we're going to rejoice then. We rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, it says in chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, Satan is going to keep after you until you finally arrive. His plan is to not let up on you. He wants you to doubt if there's anything to hold on for. He wants you to believe that when your eyelids close, the show's over and there's nothing left. He wants you to doubt that eternity is worth it. But the God who called you will carry you. You will see him face to face. Brothers and sisters, we haven't yet seen him in all of his glory. But when we do, we're going to be eternally, happily, out of our mind, joyfully devastated. I know devastation doesn't go with joy, but that's what it's going to be. Right? We're going to be so happy to fall apart. We have to continue in faith in this future grace. We resist the devil with faith in God's favor, faith in God's timing, faith in God's past grace, faith in God's future grace, but also his current grace. Resist the devil through faith in God's current grace. Oh, sweet, sweet words here. Verse 10. God who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now remember, he's telling them to be alert and to be guarded. But he says, look what God's going to do. The God of all grace is going to work in your life. And commentators have a hard time distinguishing between these, these words. Because they're all kind of closely in meaning and they kind of just, just waterfall over here. Perfect has the idea of, of preparing you, of mending you, of completing you. And it's the fact that God is working in you, the God of all grace, to preserve you. Be firm in your faith that God is going to keep you believing until you close your eyes tonight. Be firm in your faith that God is going to keep you believing tomorrow. That's how he saves us, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's going to confirm you. He's going to make you firm. He's going to make you secure. This actually described as the next two words, strengthen and establish, which he also uses. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to establish you. He's going to give you a a foundation, and we see that in Matthew 7, 25, the same word is used. And, and it's the parable of the uh, two builders, the builder on the sand and the builder on the rock, and it describes the one who built on the rock. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. That's the kind of foundation it's talking about. You who are in Christ Jesus have been founded on the rock, like Psalm 62 this morning. You have the benefit of a foundation. You've been established. It's not earthquake country. The grace of God in your life will work to bring you into his eternal glory. The devil would have you doubt God's willingness. The devil would portray God as disappointed with you. And it is possible to displease him, but is perpetually disappointed with you, as unsympathetic towards you, as hard-hearted towards you, as, as ambivalent to you, as, as a God who's impossible to please. But God is not that God. He's the God of all grace, and he's active. He himself is working to perfect you and to confirm you and to strengthen you and to establish you. God's omnipotence is working through Christ to keep you in Christ, 
Like, that should blow us away. God's omnipotence is working through Christ to keep you in Christ. The one who founded the universe will found you, will give you that foundation. The one who established the mountains will establish you. These sufferings will not end in your capitulation. They will not end in your succumbing to peer pressure. You will be restored by Christ. If you have been called in Christ, you will be restored by Christ. You will be confirmed by Christ. You will be strengthened by Christ. You will be established by Christ until you see the glory of Christ and be finally transformed into Christ's likeness. That is what we have faith in. We have faith in God actively working in you. Now, remember the context of this is be alert. So be alert. Be, a, be, be healthily nervous. He's a lion. Don't go cuddling that thing. But be firm in your faith. Resist him being firm in your faith. Firm in your faith that you're not alone. Firm in your faith of God's timing. Firm in your faith of God's past grace and of his future grace and his current grace and also firm through faith in God's power. Peter ends in verse 11, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Your faith is to be in God's power. His strength will accomplish everything he desires. An ant is closer in power to you than Satan is in power to God. Right? You can measure the difference between an ant's power and your power. We could put that on some kind of scale. The ant can lift something, you can lift something. It's finite. But the difference between Satan and God is infinite. His power is nothing compared to God's. This is why he says, to him be dominion forever and ever. When Satan attempts to destroy man's faith, he has to get permission from God. He's like, hey, can, can I go try to ruin Job's life? Can I, can I go try to make Job unfaithful? But when God flexes his muscles, the ground quakes, the tsunamis roll, demons flee, whole galaxies would go dark, and time would stop if God wanted it. All creation submits to God's will. From the smallest subatomic particle to the angelic host, from the weakest gnat to the largest star, no one doubts the stability of a mountain, but mountains are shaky compared to God's reign. No one doubts the laws of matter, the laws of conservation of matter and energy, the laws of gravity, of thermodynamics, but these human laws are fickle and petty compared to God's eternal reign. So brothers and sisters, resist the devil by being confident in the omnipotence of God in whose hand you are. Be confident in the eternal reign of your good father. No one can take you from Christ's hand. Now, many of you, if you have kids, you've held something in your hand. And the kids try to pry your hand open. Have, have any of you dads ever done that? The kids try to pry. And it's kind of a fun game, right? They're literally trying to get that key or whatever it is you've got inside your hand. Satan cannot snatch you out of the hand of Christ. He has no ability to pry those fingers open. Brothers and sisters, as you go into another week, Satan is not infinite. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent, but maybe this is the week that he seeks to destroy and devour you. Perhaps you're going to this week already toying with bitterness. Maybe you're already angry over disappointment. 
Maybe you already are worrying about what you can't change. Perhaps, maybe you wouldn't even admit it to anyone. You're sniffing around for an easier way out than picking up your cross and following. Perhaps you're tempted by the world's false gospel that freedom equals happiness. Brothers and sisters, Satan would have you just take one step of distrust, one step into doubt, one step toward discontent, one step toward his lair, where he would devour you. Be alert. Be aware. This might be the day. You must resist him firm in your faith, and we have all the reason we could here. Firm in our faith in God's favor. Firm in our faith in God's timing. Firm in our faith in God's grace and firm in our faith in God's power. Let's pray. Father, we don't know what's going on in your court at this minute. We don't know what's going on in heaven. We know that Satan is an accuser. We know that your son is a great high priest. Father, as we confess, Lord, how we have been um, sucking on our worries, so to speak, as we've been kind of enjoying the pain of trying to do things our way instead of your way. Lord, we thank you for the great high priest that we have in your son who intercedes for us. And thank you that we get to even think now about his intercession. Father, we... um, are humbled as we think about this passage, Lord. It's easy to uh, discount these warnings, to think that Satan would just move on to someone else, to think that we've got a good understanding of how the supernatural world works, to not take serious this, this wrestling against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness. Father, we want to be humble today. We want to take your warning seriously. We want to listen and give us humble hearts, Lord. Father, we want to resist Satan by being firm in our faith in you. So, Father, there's so much rejoicing that we have here. Lord, we rejoice in you being the God of all grace. We rejoice in your favor. We rejoice in the eternity we have to look forward to. We rejoice for union in Christ and how you will confirm and establish and strengthen and restore us. We rejoice in your eternal reign. And we thank you so much, Father, for the, our confidence is in you. So we want to be humble, Lord. And here we see Peter's uh, flow continue, Lord. We want to be humble before you, Father. We want to cast our cares upon you. We want to be firm in our faith, Lord. Help us to be believers, Lord, not just to have come to you through faith, Lord, but to be continuing in faith in you being the God of all grace who's brought that grace close to us in your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.